Welcome back to part two of this special edition of Thoughts in the Market. I'm Andrew Sheets, Chief Cross-Asset Strategist for Morgan Stanley. And I'm Ellen Zintner, Chief U.S. Economist for Morgan Stanley. And today we're continuing our conversation about the coronavirus effects on the U.S. and global economy. It's Friday, June 26th at 9 a.m. in New York. And it's 2 p.m. in London. So, Andrew, we've been discussing all of this in, in relation to the U.S., but given that you sit in the U.K., you know, I'm hoping that you can provide some context of how governments are, are dealing with COVID uh, in the rest of the world and specifically in, in Europe and the U.K., my understanding is that the UK's experience in terms of how they're handling shutdowns, social distancing, how people themselves are handling it in the UK has been quite different than in the US. I think it's it's really fascinating actually that you know here you have uh, a disease that's that's hit all over the world and yet you've seen different countries take very different approaches to addressing it which has resulted in in very different outcomes and I think if you look at Europe, you know you have Within continental Europe, I think an extremely effective response. You know, if we think about the U.S. is is tracking around thirty thousand daily cases, Italy is tracking about two hundred, and in the U.K., where I think there's been a lot of focus here, that the U.K. is tracking with more challenges, has been less successful in containing the disease than continental Europe. The U.K. is still tracking at about a thousand cases per day, despite the fact that it has probably you know a sixth of the population of the U.S. uh, or a seventh. So, you know, I I do think that Europe has a number of challenges, but I I think the issue of an additional wave or or the first wave picking back up, which is obviously a very live risk in the U.S., is much less of a risk in Europe because not only have the number of cases gone down, but when you have a lower number of cases, other strategies such as testing and tracing, such as mitigation, these things are easier to do when you have a smaller number of people to try to contact trace, for example. So I do think it's actually a relative advantage that Europe has relative to the US. And it is one of several reasons why, you know, over the last couple of months, we've gotten more constructive on a number of different European assets. And we've become more constructive on the euro as a currency. And just along those same lines, sticking with Europe, I mean, the the general policy response to COVID-19, it's very difficult for any of the countries around the globe to outdo the amount of policy support that we've gotten from the Fed and from Congress. But Europe is a close second. Would you agree? I would. And I think, again, you've seen an interesting ability to test a lot of different responses. A lot of countries in Europe have all taken slightly different approaches. I think some of the most successful, if you look at places like Denmark, have been programs that keep people in their jobs, but still provide support so that you don't have that that friction of forcing somebody to get fired or explicitly file for unemployment before the benefits can start rolling. And I think the countries that have been most successful in reducing the amount of unemployment or unnecessary unemployment have been probably the most direct in keeping people on the payroll. The other thing that I think is very kind of exciting in Europe is this concept of European Recovery Fund. And there's not really a good mechanism in Europe to shift money between parts of the region that are more hard hit by coronavirus and those that are doing better. This new recovery fund aims to do that, aims to provide more explicit support, we think around 750 billion euros 
of economic support for parts of the economy for regions that have been hard hit. And importantly, it's jointly backed by all the member states of the European Union. And it will be um, issued with new jointly backed debt, which in this size will be a new phenomenon. It's also kind of exciting because Europe is incredibly large an economy, right? It's it's a larger economy than the United States. It has more people than the US if we look at the European Union. But without a single jointly backed debt instrument of anything close to the size of a US Treasury. And that's been a really kind of missing piece of the European financial puzzle is you have this huge economy with no single safe asset. One thing that could be quite interesting is to the extent that this is successful and, and these jointly backed bonds are welcomed by investors, could that actually drive more of this type of issuance and encourage more of that fiscal integration? So, Andrew, as economists, you know, we have a baseline. In that baseline, we have to make some assumptions about the possible evolution of the virus. But there are a lot of considerable unknowns around those assumptions. And this is unique to this forecasting period that we're going through. But, you know, as a cross-asset strategist, how do you deal with considerable unknowns. I mean, how does one game that out? I think the most important thing is we we do have to keep an open mind. Uh, I don't think we can sit here and say, you know, we know how this will evolve from a market standpoint, even as as you mentioned, you know, you can't sit there and say you know for certainty how the economy will evolve. All of this is trying to make the best forecast we can with the information that's available and then constantly reevaluate that. But what I'd also say is I think it's easy to also to fall into that a little bit as a trap to say, well, you know, what's going on today is unprecedented and so kind of the old rules don't apply and, and you kind of throw out the driver's manual. And instead, you know, I think that this is actually a quite common problem that investors face. You know, in 2001, 2002, you had widespread corporate fraud in the U.S. And to an extent that you didn't have before, you had these massive accounting scandals. That wasn't something that I think a lot of people had a playbook for. But, you know, you were still supposed to look through that and evaluate the market. And in 2008, 2009, you had this enormous financial crisis, this huge mortgage crisis that, again, was unlike anything investors had had seen before, but you had to, you still had to try to engage with it. You still had to try to figure out how to invest through it. And indeed, it it opened up many major investment opportunities eventually. And so I I think similarly with today, we're dealing with another unique situation, a situation that's uniquely disruptive, uniquely terrible in its human cost. But I think like some of those past challenges, we don't think that we should just write it off that because it's so different, it can't be analyzed. That in the background, prior to this recession, we were seeing a lot of very normal late cycle activity. And the forecast that you and your team are making, as you just mentioned, is in some ways it has some normality to it. It's, it's a more normal recovery, for example, than we saw after the global financial crisis. So I, I think for all those reasons, we try to stick to some of those tried and true uh, investment frameworks and trying not to throw them out simply because this is a seemingly new phenomenon. Ellen, great as always to have you on the show. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Thoughts of the Market, please take a moment to rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app. It helps more people find the show. The preceding content is informational only and based on information available when created. It is not an offer or a solicitation, nor is it tax or legal advice. It does not consider your financial circumstances and objectives and may not be suitable for you.